Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dissidents and Dictators, the flagship podcast from the Human Rights Foundation. My name is Alicia Maldonado, sitting alongside my co-host, Mr. Casey Michelle. With the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine coming up this weekend, we have a guest here to talk about the stakes and ongoing developments. Her name is Lisa Yasko, and she's a member of Ukraine's parliament, the Committee on Foreign Affairs and Interparliamentary Cooperation, and the Ukrainian delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. She's also the founder of Yellow Blue Strategy, an NGO working to make Ukraine creative, safe, and sustainable. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation to speak. How are you? I, I, you're based in Kyiv at the moment, correct? Yeah, I'm in Kyiv. I just came back from Munich Security Conference and I had a more than 24-hour uh, trip uh, on the way back home. Well, I'd love to talk about that, but can you give us a feeling of what the mood is like in Kyiv at the moment with the anniversary a couple days away? Well, you know, this week is very dramatic week for our recent uh, history because not only the full-scale war has started two years ago, but also 10 years ago there was a very tragic days uh, of our revolution of dignity when uh, uh, protesters were killed. Uh, we call these hundreds of people, in fact, more than 100 uh, people, heavenly hundred heroes. Uh, they were killed because they were fighting for the freedom, for European choice of Ukraine. And this week is uh, very, very sad and full of, of memories, full of thoughts on things that we used to believe in and didn't know what the world could bring to us in the next years. Uh, at that time, I think 10 years ago, we were quite naive. Also two years ago with the full-scale invasion, of course, no one could ever imagine anything similar that this terrible work could do to our lives. Lisa, I think it's, it's great that you bring up the 10-year anniversary because I think a lot of folks, especially those in, like us in the United States, maybe don't remember, maybe forget that this invasion did not begin two years ago, even though we have obviously the two-year anniversary of the expanded invasion, but it began 10 years ago with Russian troops going into Crimea and obviously supporting entities and elements in part of eastern Ukraine as well. I'm, I'm wondering, Lisa, if you could take us back because you, you know, again, uh, we were all so much younger 10 years ago, and we have all le learned so much over the last 10 years. Where, where were you 10 years ago in February, in March, uh, in the success of Euromaidan, and then when we first began seeing Russian troops on Ukrainian territory? Were you, were you in Kiev at the time? Were you a student at the time? Were you working? Yeah, I was a student and I was working and at, in fact, I was at the barricades of Euromaidan and playing the piano between the police and protesters. Uh, and um, it was a very hard um, period for me because I also was uh, finishing my master degree and a part of my master degree was an exchange program that I did in Moscow. So, uh, in fact, I was... Um, Last time I was in Russia, it was, it was in 2014, but already at the time, I remember how in the Russian airports, the Russian um, guards and uh, bo like border guards would ask me the questions, uh, security questions. Uh, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of um, very 
bad um, attitude, lots of aggression, also already in the air uh, and in in, in place yeah. in in 2013 in Russia towards uh, towards Ukraine, and then um, yeah, uh, it was just very dramatic moments, the February and January 2014, when thousands thousands of people were at demonstrations in in Ukraine because we wanted freedom and we still want freedom but the 10 years have passed and unfortunately we still have the same fight but this fight became even bigger now i i remember there is a famous video on youtube of you playing piano during euromaidan which we can link to in the in the show Absolutely. notes lisa i, I should do you still play piano is this still something you find time for you know it's actually quite a sensitive question to me because um Music was always for me the voice of freedom, the voice of something that I was using to tell some of the things I believed in. Mm -hmm. And after Euromaidan, I stopped doing it, in fact. And uh, I only very rarely I come back to it. Uh, but recently I decided that I have to go back to some of my music uh, connection because simply it's not only a way to make a statement, but also it's mm -hmm. it's a healing, and it's very Im important uh, connection to arts that can help you in very hard times that most of us go through, including myself. Um, I need to find some, you know, creative energy from somewhere, and I hope that the piano that is currently in my apartment will help <laughs> me to do that. Hopefully, absolutely. Well, let's think, bring things back to where they are uh, this year, uh, right right now, Lisa. The conversations that are taking place in Kyiv, the conversation you are having with colleagues as well as with partners in places places like certainly Munich, but also Brussels, and I'm sure you're following developments in Washington as well. You know, a, a lot of our listeners, again, Lisa, are based in the West, uh, based in places like the U.S. or uh, certainly parts of Western and Central Europe. Obviously, we see the conversations, we see the debates about policy continue moving forward. I'm wondering from, from your perspective, from your vantage point, what do you think is being overlooked? What do you think is being forgotten? What do you think is being ignored in some of these conversations as it regards developments and certainly support for Ukraine? And again, the Ukrainians literally on the front lines of this fight for freedom. You know, I always try to repeat that it's not only our fight, it's not the Ukrainian fight for freedom, it's actually much bigger fight for the new international security order, for the new future system of international law that should uh, be functional. So it's it's bigger than, than just our fight. But one thing that really disappoints me now, especially when I go to such places as Munich Security Conference and I have an opportunity to speak to many head of the states uh, and listen to many of uh, statements, uh, like publicly, informally and formally, I feel like the world in general, the West, already accepted the fact that we are going through very hard times and that there will be war, um, maybe even longer. Uh, and bigger in the rest of the world, and there will be more uh, conflicts and war wars in in the war. And I even asked my question to some of this during this conversation. So why actually we accept it as as by default? Why don't we want to prevent it from happening? And you know, I'm not satisfied with the answers that I hear. It feels like 
we go through very turbulent, very existential political time in different countries. And we forget that uh, for uh, literally for tomorrow, you need to plan uh, yesterday and before yesterday. And I'm very scared because of many elections that are going to take place this year, including the U.S. And it's not about personalities. Mm -hmm. It's more about that many things become a part of populistic battles that is not helpful for things that our societies, our world needs to have now. Mm I mean, look, Lisa, you're exactly right. It's not about the personalities. These are broader trends. These are broader trajectories that certainly some of these personalities are are picking up on. But I want to go back to what you said earlier that, yes, of course, the fight is on Ukrainian territory. And of course, it is the Ukrainians that are fighting and dying day in and day out for Ukrainian freedom, Ukrainian sovereignty. But at the end of the day, it's not just the fight for Kyiv sovereignty. I think a lot of folks have forgotten that this is a fight for all of us for global security, for democracy as we know it, as we understand it. And frankly, the Ukrainians have been doing this for a decade now. They have been the model. They've been the go-to for folks who want to be inspired, who want to look at even the costs, what it means to be on the front lines of this fight against dictatorship. And unfortunately, far too many continue to forget that or overlook that, even while the support that the Ukrainians uh, need, I mean, they continue to need the kind of support because this is not going to end tomorrow. It's not going to end even next week. It has to continue moving forward. Yes, uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, I'm very worried in general. You ask me, how do I feel these these days? I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more worried than I was a year ago or two years two years ago mm-hmm. exactly because of the reasons you mentioned mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. there is too much uncertainty in the world there is too less um, a visible leadership mm-hmm. political leadership that would be building you know very wise decisions yeah. well let's let's turn maybe to some more optimistic news I, obviously there's plenty of reason for concern there's plenty of reason for pessimism but maybe let's turn to a little bit of, of optimism both on the ground, but also more, more broadly. I'm, I'm wondering, Lisa, I mean, look, we've, we've seen obviously successes in terms of Ukraine's Black Sea operations, been an incredible success. I think a lot of folks still aren't paying attention to necessarily. We did see the European Union's aid package come through 50 billion just a, a few weeks ago and still potentially another aid package out of Washington. Are there elements either in Ukraine or more broadly that do give you the kind of optimism that you can look to, you can hold to, Lisa, as we move you know, further into 2024? Yes, and I can share with you that, for instance, um, when I hear statements from certain countries, and I know about the real actions, for instance, as uh, uh, Norway and Scandinavian countries are, are doing, you know, that they uh, delivered lots of uh, military aid to Ukraine, lots of humanitarian aid, and it's very concerning consistent uh, assistance and support now. And I see uh, when Sweden and Finland uh, joined NATO, I believe that it's it's incredibly important existentially 
I mean, if such countries make such a decision, it means that they understand that they want to have a future in peace and they are ready to even change their own position. And I think it's very positive. I also find, in fact, you know, in Munich Security Conference, I had an opportunity to speak some with some congressmen from U.S. and some of them were even from um, uh, so uh, criticized uh, currently uh, groups from uh, Republican uh, a party mm -hmm. and uh, from what I've heard in majority of the conversation is that uh, we have support from both parties it's only the problem is internal battles that mm -hmm. ha unfortunately are happening inside US but I really hope that still the strategic things will will even if they are postponed they they will still uh, make make it happen i mean ukrainian aid and and not only mm -hmm. so these things give me a hope i also think that two years ago the humanity woke up i mean international um i would say uh, international scene of uh, people just opening their hearts and homes and minds uh, uh, to those who are in need, I mean, Ukrainians at, at, at that time, that's that's very, very big. And I know that many decisions were made after that uh, on economy, uh, on social um, areas. And it requires rethinking your own state strategies, policy strategies. And I know that it's happening in many countries, but I'm not happy with the pace of it, with the speed of it. But still, it's quite optimistic, mm -hmm. and I think it's, it's worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. What are the next steps for Ukrainians as, you know, just time keeps marching forward and, and the fight continues, but... Well, you know, because because of the things I just said, that we understand that the world is, is going through hell sometimes, mm -hmm. we learned to... Uh, understand that we have to rely on ourselves and we ask for, for support in the form of uh, weapons and uh, different kinds of assistance. But we are trying to build our own uh, production, military production, uh, to sustain our economy. We try to find find out solutions that are needed for uh, for our people and uh, of course we struggle with many questions but 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 we are moving uh, well our next steps are all about defense of our own uh, land of our lives uh, unfortunately it's 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 the same as as mm -hmm. as the main goal was uh, also two years ago mm -hmm. I was gonna ask Lisa in that end, what are the main topics of conversation taking place among you and your colleagues in Kyiv right now? Is it pertaining to strategy on the ground? Is it pertaining to building up new partnerships uh, elsewhere? Is it pertaining to uh, domestic economic reform? Is it pertaining to domestic democratic reform? What are kind of the top of mind conversations you are having with your colleagues right now? Here we are in, in February of 2024. Well, of course, our attention goes to the forefront. And unfortunately, we have situation when Avdiivka mm -hmm. was taken by, by Russians mm -hmm. and uh, they managed to get it uh, for one very simple reason. 
uh, we didn't have enough weapon. Yeah. And so that's that's other topic that we discuss all the time, of course, is international aid. And uh, it's it's very sad because because we um, are dependent on international aid of uh, ammunition, of uh, artillery and uh, different kinds of weapons. Mm -hmm. And this is what we are talking. I think this is uh, the most crucial topics. And of course, the third one is how to defend Ukraine in general and who is going to continue doing it because many people are getting killed, you know, and uh, it's it's. It's very hard uh, and it's very uh, heartbreaking to see how many families are broken. And and you just got back, as you mentioned a moment ago, from Munich for the Munich Security Forum, Security Conference. Were That's there, true. Were there conversations there that surprised you in any way? Obviously, you follow this news day in and day out. You're often making the news day in and day out. Were there conversations or even representatives uh, that were also in attendance that surprised you in, in, in any way? Well, I think the main surprise comes from the fact that I saw that many people have took this war by just, you know, not trying to, to do something more than just accepting it. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it feels like there is less conversation on what do we need to stop uh, the war and to defend Ukraine. It's more about how do we make sure that we sustain uh, that um, there is some justice and that Ukraine wins. Mm -hmm. And uh, don't get me wrong here. What I mean by that, it feels like there is not enough, um, not enough strategic understanding on what needs to be done to prevent future wars. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it feels like uh, we are just waiting for different things to happen, but we have also to prepare also what happens after them, you know? In light of, you know, what are the things we can do to end this war? What do you make of some of the calls for Ukraine to make concessions to Moscow in order to, quote, hasten the end of it? I, I can imagine what Ukrainians' attitude is to that, but can you speak on it? Yeah, and I will also ask you not uh, to ask such questions <laughs> because... Uh, because, you know, um, our president, for instance, said that uh, when someone again and again asks him when the war will be over, when Ukraine will start uh, nego negotiating for peace, uh, President Zelensky said, look, but it's the wrong question. You should be asking question why we still have Russian aggression, mm -hmm. why mm -hmm. we still have the war, uh, what can we do to stop the war? But mm -hmm. um, it, look, they took millions of our lives and homes. Mm -hmm. They started this war to kill to kill us in every possible way. It's 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 not the moment when you negotiate, you know. And mm -hmm. it's it's been it it has been uh, happening for years, and we just want to make the end. To, to this terrible aggression that Russia is doing to us and also to the rest of the world by undermining also stabilities of other nations. And of course, if there's one lesson from European security over the last century, it is that giving territory, giving peoples to dictators that are on the march 
does not satisfy them. They will always come back for more. As, of course, Putin has said time and time and time again about his views on Ukraine, his views on Ukrainians, and his views on Russia's, as he sees it, rightful place in the broader European security architecture itself. Lisa, I know we only have a few minutes with you remaining. I wanted to pull back maybe just a little bit and look at the kind of the broader realities, the broader implications of the fight in Ukraine, which again, I think a lot of people unfortunately have forgotten now that this expanded invasion is obviously two years old, as well as the invasion overall is now 10 years old. You know, I mentioned earlier that the Ukrainians are on the front lines for the fight for freedom. I would love to hear your perspective on this. And again, how it is that the Ukrainians themselves are the ones that are fighting and dying not only for Ukrainian safety and sovereignty, but for democracy as we know it, to say nothing of global security in and of itself. It's, it's, it's absolutely ideological, um, but also values conflict, war, because, you know, when the West proclaims that we ha want to defend democracy and human rights, then we have to have all the tools to do that. So if someone undermines it, then they these people need or or nations or countries or leaders need to be sanctioned if, if they don't respect uh, uh, territorial integrity, if they don't respect democracies, if they don't respect uh, human rights. Mm -hmm. But it looks like it's very often only on paper and we have to develop real tools in the forms of international organizations, in the forms of uh, uh, cooperation within NATO or any kind of security cooperation. Um, it's not only uh, hard uh, power, but it's also soft power. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have uh, education and not only in place that will be explaining this. Because it looks like we, um, we understand certain things, but we don't have tools and understanding how to protect that just because someone seems to be stronger to impose aggression on us. Mm -hmm. So we need to work on how do we make sure that we, ha we are strong enough in the values of democracy that we believe in. Well, Lisa, this has been a wonderful conversation and we cannot thank you enough for joining us today. I just wanted to ask if there's anything else you would like to leave the listeners with now that we are here, the two-year anniversary of the expanded invasion, the 10-year anniversary of Euromaidan and the initial invasion back in 2014. Is there anything that we haven't talked about today or any specific actions you would love listeners to take away from this conversation today? Well, just don't take freedom for granted. Um, please make sure that this freedom is secured and protected uh, to your children, to uh, your tomorrow, and make sure that the international cooperation that we are all a part of really works for that values that we believe in. And I really think that everyone can make a, such a contribution to this future of tomorrow. Amen to that. Lisa, this was wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. And we thank are you. thinking of you and all of your colleagues in Kyiv today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Casey, I didn't know Lisa played the piano. Very excited to watch that video. I somehow missed that we played that at uh, our forum last year. It was an incredibly moving, moving video. It's funny. I actually, I was in Kiev a few months before you and my Don broke out, and they have they have these pianos that are right, right in the middle of town. I, I had the opportunity to play one a little bit, but not nearly as well as as, as Lisa. You played the piano as well. 
Yes, and again, it's not, <gasps> not something I'm going to share with the world any, anytime soon. But, but in keeping with musical themes, we have a, a great guest next week. We have a lovely guest next week. Her name is Tanelli Masek. Who's going to share her musical talents with us. Yes, she's a, much more. a human rights campaigner in Swaziland. And her husband, uh, Tulani Maseko, who was assassinated last year for his human rights work, uh, she has a, is the CEO of his foundation now. So we will talk with her next week. And uh, she's, she's a real delight. She's just an amazing person. That's so. going to be a great conversation. Can't yeah, wait. Yeah, look forward to it. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally with a focus on closed societies. We promote freedom where it's most at risk in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes.